Well, take your Bibles and turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, and we have been uh, addressing this subject of spiritual warfare uh, over the last several weeks, um, both on Sunday morning and Wednesday night. And uh, we've been talking about uh, how Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20 is really like a boot camp for believers. And uh, we've been unpacking each piece of armor on Wednesday nights. And um, I have quoted uh, a couple of verses, a few verses here in James. Um, It seems like in almost every sermon that I've preached so far about this subject of spiritual warfare... Uh, because it's so critical to understanding the whole process of how um, Satan works and how temptation works and how sin works. And so I thought it would be helpful just to drill down a a little deeper into this verse that I've really up to now only had the opportunity just to kind of quote and then move on quickly. And so I'm referring to James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. James chapter 1, verses 14 through through 16, and James says this, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Father, we get the sense that James was in earnest when he wrote those words. We know he wrote them under the inspiration of your spirit who dwells within us and among us. Even now we are dependent on your spirit to illuminate these verses to help us understand what James meant by what he said here. And so we ask that you would open up our minds to, to uh, comprehend Uh, the truth that's here, that is so critical, so vital, so that we are not deceived by Satan and by temptation and by sin. And so would you bless this message this morning, use it uh, in all of our lives, Lord, to help us to be uh, more of who you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that uh, our family likes to do, kind of a little family Uh, tradition is movie night. And Kelly will make our kids' favorite meal, which is her homemade pizza, and we eat in the living room while watching a movie together. And uh, we still do that, even though our kids are (laughs) adults, and uh, we have them come over and and, uh, have a fun time together. One One of my favorite movies that we used to watch when our kids were little is Pinocchio. How many of you guys have seen the movie Pinocchio, right? That's a classic Disney film, you know the story, an old clockmaker named Geppetto carves a wooden puppet named Pinocchio. And before he goes to bed that night, he makes a wish that he would become a real boy. And as he sleeps, the fairy godmother comes and tells Pinocchio that in order to become a real boy, he has to learn to choose between right and wrong. And she assigns a reluctant Jiminy Cricket to be his conscience whose job it is to follow him around and keep him out of trouble. Well, one day on his way to school, Pinocchio meets Honest John and Kitty, who've been employed by the evil coachman to collect stupid little boys, I didn't make that up, that's what they're called, um, who play hooky from school 
so that he can take them to a place called Pleasure Island. And so they proceed to convince Pinocchio that he needs a vacation on Pleasure Island. And they tell him that it is, quote, a happy land of carefree boys where every day is a holiday. There's nothing to do but play. No school, no cops. They can tear the place apart and nobody says anything. There's all the food and drink and smoke you can possibly want and it's all free. Well, the gullible Pinocchio joins a boatload of other boys and heads off to Pleasure Island. He and his newfound friends have a total blast, the time of their lives. Everything was exactly as promised, except for one small detail. The boys begin to turn into donkeys, and the evil coachman packs them into crates and ships them off to work in the salt mines. And the scene on Pleasure Island climaxes with some little boys half turned into donkeys crying out, I don't want to be a donkey, I want to go home. To which the evil coachman replies, you boys had your fun, now pay for it. I think we can learn a valuable lesson from the story about Satan and sin and temptation. Because this story is really a perfect picture of what Satan does to us. He promises all this great stuff if we just go along with him, but then he turns us into a donkey-like slave. He invites us to enjoy some type of pleasure, and we, we do it, but then he makes us pay dearly for it. Thomas Brooks, uh, the Puritan who wrote a classic little book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, He said this, quote, Satan leads us and leaves us in a fool's paradise. In other words, sin makes us stupid and do stupid things. The question is, how is Satan so successful at convincing so many of us to take a vacation on Pleasure Island? Maybe it's just a 30-second trip in our minds, maybe it's a week-long binge, maybe it's a a secret year-long affair. Well, he does it the same way the evil coachman did, deception. Satan is the ultimate con man. He tricks us, he fools us, he scams us. John Owen, in his helpful book, Sin and Temptation, He said this, quote, all the great works that Satan does in this world in stirring up men to oppose the Lord Jesus Christ, he does by deceit. And then he says this, the life of temptation lies in deceit. In other words, the only reason temptation has any power over us is because of how deceptive it is. And we've been learning about this over the last few Sundays The Bible is very clear about this. Genesis 3.13, when when God asked Eve what she had done in eating the apple, sinning against God, she said, quote, the serpent deceived me and I ate. In 2 Corinthians 11.3, Paul says, I'm afraid that lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Galatians 6.7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. 
And the writer of Hebrews warns in chapter 3, verse 13, against being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the scripture makes it very clear that sin is deceitful. It does its work through deception. Every temptation is a deception. In fact, it is more accurate to refer to temptation as deception. In fact, I might help you. Rather than thinking I'm being tempted right now is, no, I'm being deceived right now. I'm being conned right now. I'm being scammed right now. We usually, I don't know, but I hate getting conned. I hate getting scammed. I hate getting ripped off. Have you ever been ripped off by someone? You thought they sold you something or they told you this and then it didn't work out. And, and I hate that feeling. But you usually don't know until after the fact, whereas God's word, God has his, his clearly laid it out in his word for us so that we don't have to be scammed. We don't have to be conned. We don't have to be ripped off. He's telling us, listen, temptation is a con. It's a scam. You're going to get ripped off. We know that ahead of time. And I think just understanding this simple truth is critical to resisting Satan and not giving in to temptation. I think that's what James wanted his readers to understand here. And if you're familiar with the book of James, James started this letter by addressing the topic of trials in verses 2 through 12. And then starting in verse 13 through 16, he shifted his focus to the topic of temptation. And the first thing that James said about temptation is that we should never blame God for it. Notice verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Notice he says, let no one say when he is tempted. In other words, it's not a question of if we will be tempted, but when we'll be tempted. It's only a matter of time. And James warned us here not to think that God is the one tempting us and not to accuse God of trying to get us to sin. And he gives us two reasons why we should never do that. Number one, temptation is inconsistent with God's character. For God cannot be tempted by evil. God is perfectly holy. God is perfectly pure. He hates sin. He hates evil. Evil does not appeal to him like it does us. God is untemptable. So temptation is inconsistent with God's character, but it's also, temptation is inconsistent with God's conduct. He says he himself does not tempt anyone. God would never try to, 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 to seduce any of us to evil. It's, a, it's unthinkable, unthinkable that he would try to get us to sin. God is not the tempter. Satan is the tempter. We learn that's one of his titles uh, in Scripture. But I think this verse is so important because all of us are prone to blame other people for our sin. We're by nature professional blame shifters or finger pointers. And our natural inclination is to escape the responsibility for our actions. No one, no one likes to admit that they're wrong. It's a lot easier to make 
an excuse to blame someone or something else for our sin. And we know that's exactly what Adam did in an effort to justify his sin. He lashed out at God and blamed him for his sin. It's the woman that you gave me, God. Proverbs 19.3, an interesting little verse here. It says, the foolishness of man subverts his way and his heart rages against the Lord. The foolishness of man subverts his way and his heart rages against the Lord. In other words, a person stupidly ruins their life or they ruin their life through their own uh, sinful stupidity And then they get mad and bitter at God for how their life turned out. And I think we all have a tendency to take our frustration with our sinful struggles out on God. We blame him for putting us in certain situations. Well, God, if I wasn't or whatever, right? Or or maybe we blame God for making us a certain way or giving us certain desires that for whatever reason he's intended not to satisfy. But James places the responsibility for sin squarely on our shoulders where it belongs. Sin is not God's fault, and it's not even Satan's fault. We, we can't use the classic cop-out, well, the devil made me do it, right? I mean, think about the temptation of Jesus. We talked about that last week, that Satan, one of the things Satan did was to bring Jesus up to the top of the temple or encourage him to go to the top of the temple and jump off to show off, basically, that he was the son of God. And Because God says, the Bible says, he'll never let your foot strike the ground and he'll have angels swoop down and rescue you. And notice, though, remember, he didn't, Satan didn't push Jesus off. He can't do that. Satan can't push you into bed with someone that's not your spouse. Satan can't push a needle in your arm or push a bottle to your lips. If we sin, we only have ourselves to blame. Our sinful decisions are caused by our sinful desires. And James made that very clear in the next three verses, which I think provide us with the most helpful explanation in the whole Bible of how temptation and sin works. And I think the main point of of James' instruction here uh, on temptation and sin is found in verse 16. He kind of ends with the most important truth. He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Literally, stop being deceived. Why do you keep letting yourself get conned? Why why do you keep being stupid? You you know what it is ahead of time, and yet you give it anyway. Stop being deceived. And so in order to keep us from taking the bait that, that Satan offers us, James explained the deceptive and destructive nature of sin and temptation in three degrading degrees. And what I mean by that is degrees are are successive steps or stages in a process. And so James described the the steps or the stages a person goes through every time they're tempted to sin. And each one of these steps or stages is degrading. Each step causes a person to go lower. It's like you're stepping down 
a staircase and it makes you more and more corrupt. So what are these three degrading degrees that really give us insight into the deceptive, destructive nature of sin, all for the purpose of not taking the bait? Well, what's the first one? Number one is seduction. That's the first stage. The seduction stage, verse 14, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust, his own epithumia, which is the word for desires or or cravings. James goes on to uh, describe these in chapter 4. Just maybe look over at the other side of the page there in your Bible, James chapter 4, verse 1. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? That's the same word there. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And then if you remember 1 John 2.15, we've been hitting this both on Sunday morning and Wednesday night because it's really um, at the hub of of the interchange between Satan, the the world, the flesh, and the devil, right? We're always dealing with these things on a daily basis. Uh, 1 John 2, verse 15, do not love the world nor the things in the world. Um, If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust, there is the epithemia, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father but is from the world. So these three things here, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life describe the controlling desires for physical or sensual pleasure. That's the lust of the flesh. For material profit and gain, that's the lust of the eyes, the things we see, and for personal power and prestige. That's the pride of life. And if it wasn't for these three sinful desires that are within our hearts, we would be impervious to temptation because sin would have no appeal or attraction to us. But because these sinful desires are are constantly looking for ways to satisfy themselves, All it takes is for some external temptation to to draw them out of hiding in our hearts. And sometimes they're drawn out slowly over time. Other times they just come lunging forth in in a moment. But either way, our sinful desires have one goal. They want to dominate our lives. They want to take control over us. And so we need to understand this process. And he said that it begins, James said here, it begins when our lust is carried away and enticed. These are two words that were used back then to describe hunting and fishing. Carried away means to be drawn out or to be drug out. Enticed literally is talking about being enticed with bait Uh, being lured into a trap by using bait. And again, we talked about uh, this uh, a couple of times now, how how, how fish and animals uh, are seduced out of a safe hiding place by some kind of bait. I mean, fish aren't stupid. At least I don't think they are. Not sure about fish. But anyway, fishermen 
you know you can't just drop a, a, you know, a hook in the water and expect the fish to bite on it. That, that's too obvious, right? So you have to disguise it, disguise the hook with bait, and so the fish is deceived. And he lunges for that lure with great anticipation of pleasure, but when he bites down, all he feels is pain. Sound familiar? I guarantee you every one of us has a story of that in our own lives. The reason is because we're being hunted, we're being tracked, we're being hunted by Satan. He's stalking us. He's trying to, to, to take us captive, to do his will. And he's got traps and snares laid out all over the place. And he's constantly conniving to deceive us and trick us into seeing, sinning. And so like a master angler, he knows exactly what kind of bait works best with certain types of fish, whether that's the nice juicy worm, the shiny red lure, a fake fly. Listen, Satan knows you. He knows your weaknesses. He knows how to exploit your weaknesses. He knows where that chink in the armor is. And he knows what kind of bait will work best to catch you. And so he reaches into his tackle box of temptations and he pulls out something that will appeal to either the lust of our flesh, the lust of our eyes, the boastful pride of life. And he baits the hook and he hides it so we can't see it. And all we see is something that we think will satisfy us. But when we lunge out and bite down on it, all we experience is pain and misery. Again, Thomas Brooks, so vivid in his language in precious remedies against Satan's devices. He exposes all the devices, the ways that Satan uses to get us to sin. Device one, he says, quote, to present the bait and hide the hook, to present the sweet, the pleasure, the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin and by hiding from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow committing of sin. And then he says this, oh, therefore, forever take heed of playing with or nibbling at Satan's golden baits. You might say, well, I'm, I'm not, I, I know I, I shouldn't do that or I can't do that, but I'll just, I'll get as close as I can to that. I'll just kind of, kind of play with it a little bit and I'll kind of maybe just take a little nibble out of that. He says, man, stay as far away from Satan's baits as possible. Because Satan's strategy is to seduce us with immediate gratification and get us to forget about the eventual painful consequences. And I think it's important to note here that, that James makes a distinction here between temptation and sin. Notice verse, 14, verse 15, he says, Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So apparently up to that point in the middle of verse 15, everything we've read in 14 in the beginning of verse 15 is not sin. It, it, it's temptation. It's, it's simply sinful desires which are normal and, and natural for every one of us. And so it's like a fish just kind of hanging out, minding his own business, and all of a sudden a lure kind of zips by his hiding spot. And the debate that goes on in our mind whether to hit that 
lure or to swim away, that's not sin. It becomes sin when we choose to sin. Temptation is simply sin knocking at our door. It's not necessarily our fault that it's knocking, but it is our fault if we go and open the door and let it in. And I think this is the most crucial point in the whole process of temptation is when that sinful thought first enters our minds. And if we want to keep from being seduced by temptation, we need to get rid of that thought as fast as possible. Because if we think about it long enough, we're going to end up doing it. At least that's been my experience. Whenever I've been tempted, it seems like the longer I think about it and mull it over, the louder my flesh screams for satisfaction and it begins to drown out my conscience, warning me of the consequences if I give into it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said something fascinating. I'll never forget reading this. It was like a, a, a trumpet sound went off in my head when I read this sentence. He said, quote, at this moment, the moment of temptation, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality. The only reality is the devil. And then he said this, Satan does not here fill our hearts or fill us with hatred of God, but forgetfulness of God. I've never before I gave in a temptation thought, God, I just, I hate you so much. I'm just going to do this. No, it was like God wasn't anywhere to be seen. He, he just, I forgot all about him in that moment. So all that to say, the battle against temptation is won or lost where? In our minds. And so the moment that wicked thought comes into our mind, we need to confront it and we need to take it captive. I think that's what Paul was referring to in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations, which are thoughts, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we need to take those sinful thoughts captive. We need to take them prisoner and make them our slave or they will take us prisoner and make us their slave. An example of how this might work in our minds is given to us in Philippians chapter 4. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. How many times throughout the day are you tempted to worry about something, to be anxious about something? Well, what does Paul say? Don't be anxious about anything, but instead of worrying about it, pray about it. And so you need to turn that care into a prayer. As soon as that worrisome 
anxious thought comes into your head and you want to dwell on that and begin to potentially sin, give into that and worry and become anxious and fearful, you need to immediately begin to pray about that. And if you do that, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. In other words, that anxiety will flee. And then he goes on in verse 8, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Let your mind dwell on these things. In other words, stop dwelling on whatever that sinful thought, that evil thought, that tempting thought is. Don't dwell on that. Replace it with something else that's God-honoring. So the point is we need to, if we want to overcome temptation, we need to learn to stop the process as soon as it starts at the seduction stage. And and, and when we're in that stage, we need to remind ourselves that lust is a liar. Don't believe it. It never satisfies. It, It always leaves us feeling dirty or discouraged or depressed and desiring more, and then eventually it will destroy our life. These are conversations, right, we need to have with ourselves. That's actually a a statement that I had printed out on a piece of paper at one point and had above my desk just to remind myself whenever I was tempted I need to read that to myself to remind myself. Thomas Brooks, again, gives us the remedy to this whole idea of Satan hiding uh, the hook, you know, presenting the bait and hiding the hook. He said this, to look on sin with the eye with which we shall see it in a few hours. Then it will appear more vile, filthy, and terrible than hell itself. Then that which formerly appeared sweet will appear most bitter And that which appeared most beautiful will appear most ugly. And that which appeared most delightful will then appear most dreadful. In other words, we need to tear the mask off of temptation so we can see it for what it really is and not give into it. So that's the first degrading degree. It's seduction. But then that leads to sedition. That leads to sedition. And I'll explain that word in just a moment. But once a person has been seduced by the bait, the next step step is they grab hold of it. Notice what James says here in verse 15. He says, each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived... It gives birth to sin. And and James used some very graphic language here to unforgettably describe this second stage of deception, and that is conception and birth. And the natural process a woman goes through when she has a baby is that you get pregnant and then you have a baby. That's just how it happens. And in the same way, if you lust after something long enough, you are going to sin. Lust inevitably gives birth to sin. Now, I've defined sin here as sedition. I think it's an interesting word. Webster's Dictionary 
defines sedition as, quote, the stirring up of discontent, resistance, or rebellion against the government in power. The stirring up of discontent, resistance, or rebellion against the government in power. I chose this word because I think that is precisely what goes on in our hearts when we sin. God is the government in power over us. Sin is rebellion against God, and rebellion against God is caused by discontent with God. And I don't know if you've ever thought this through, but this is, these are the seditious steps of sin. Number one, you become dissatisfied with what God has given you. Secondly, you desire or covet what God hasn't given you. And then thirdly, you disobey to get what God hasn't given you. Isn't that how it happens? You get dissatisfied or discontent with what God has given us. So you begin to desire and covet what God hasn't given you. And then you disobey to get what God hasn't given you. So we need to take that back to the very beginning. We need to guard our hearts against discontent or dissatisfaction. And if we don't acknowledge those moments where we are dissatisfied or discontent with God's provision for us, then, then we will eventually end up acting out in rebellion against God. John Piper said it so well in his book, Future Grace. I mean, this sentence is worth the price of that big, thick book. He said this, quote, sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. That's a profound statement. Sin is what you do when your heart is not satisfied with God. And so James explained here how how sin attracts us by promising some kind of pleasure or satisfaction. It, It tries to persuade us that we'll be happier if we do it or say it or watch it or eat it or drink it or smoke it or inhale it. But sin never satisfies. Have you noticed? One more lustful look. One more bowl of ice cream. One more glass of wine. One more selfish act. One more angry rant. It never satisfies. It just makes you want what? One more. Sin is like doing drugs. I mean, once you get hooked on sin, you need more and more to satisfy you. Like, like, like people go from kind of entry-level drugs to harder drugs, right? You, there's maybe some entry-level sins, and then you look for harder sins. Ephesians 4.19, having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You just can't get enough. I don't know of a better place where sin has been more profoundly described as it was by the writer of Hebrews when he said that Moses refused to enjoy, quote, the passing pleasures of sin. Listen, the Bible's honest. Sin is pleasurable. Sin is fun. I mean, why would we risk everything 
to enjoy a, a taste of sin because it is enjoyable, it's pleasurable, it's, it's fun. But I love what it says here in that same context, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater, Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And of course, this is in the context of Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, is what motivated all of these people to act in a God-honoring way. So what was he, how did Moses overcome the seduction of sinful Egypt? I mean, it was everywhere. He could have had anything he dreamed of. He was the son of a pharaoh. So how did he overcome the seduction of sinful Egypt? It was by faith, by faith in the promises of God. See, Satan's always telling us that God is keeping something from us. That, that's what he said to Eve. Oh, oh, he said that you shouldn't eat that because, you know, you'll die. You're not going to die. He just doesn't want you to be like him. He, he planted the thought in Eve's mind that, hey, God... God's holding out on you. He's, he's keeping something from you. And that's why we need to have faith in God's word. We need to believe what God's word says rather than what Satan tells us. Psalm 84, I love this, verse 11 and 12. No good thing does God withhold from those who walk with integrity. O Lord of hosts, how blessed is the man who trusts in you. You're either going to believe that or you're not. That's really, it all comes out, you're either going to believe that or not. That God is not holding out on you. You are not missing anything. And that you are ultimately blessed if you simply trust it. To provide for you in his way, his time. Even if you think he's forgotten something. Or you wish you had something different or better or more or less. He's given you what you need. Another thing I think we should talk about a little bit is this whole idea of fighting temptation by calling to mind certain principles from God's word. We're going to be hitting this in a couple weeks when we talk about the sword of the spirit, but Typically, we try to fight temptation by calling to mind all the warnings that God has given us in his word about perhaps that, that sin, that particular sin. And, and so we, we try to motiv motivate ourselves to not do it because something bad will happen if we do. In other words, we try to scare ourselves. But I would suggest to you that we should fight temptation by calling to mind not necessarily all the warnings, or not just the warnings, but how about all the promises that God has made if you don't give into it? Rather than all the warnings that if you give into it, what about all the promises if you don't give into it? In other words, God's word tells us that if we don't do certain things, Good things are going to happen. 
So instead of focusing on what we'll lose if we sin, we should focus on what we'll gain if we don't sin. Which is far greater in the end to what we get if we sin. Again, I'm drawing from years of reading John Piper and particularly Desiring God where he laid out that philosophy of Christian hedonism which was very controversial at the time where basically, you know, it was almost like an oxymoron. Christian hedonism, what? Those two words don't even belong in the same phrase, right? But his point was, hey, everyone is a hedonist at heart. We're all looking for happiness. We're all looking for satisfaction. That's not necessarily the problem. The problem is when we're looking, where we're looking for that happiness and satisfaction. And if you're a Christian, you should be hunting uh, and pursuing your satisfaction and your happiness in God. And so in his eloquent words, Piper said this whole idea of, of, of calling to mind the promises of God and fighting sin uh, and, ten, and temptation with God's promises rather than God's warnings, he said that will help us forsake the, quote, two-bit, low-yield, short-term, never-satisfying, person-destroying, God-belittling pleasures of sin. In other words, it will cause us to deny ourselves the, the temporary satisfaction of sin so we can enjoy true, lasting satisfaction in God. So rather than being a negative reason why we don't sin or give in, it's a positive reason. And so we have to let the, the power of God's promises to satisfy us break the power of sin's promises to satisfy us. Sin's saying, hey, this will satisfy you, you should try it. And God's saying, no, I'll satisfy you. I'm enough for you. So the way to kill sin to mortify sin is by the power of a superior pleasure. Uh, attraction to sin is broken by a stronger attraction, a, a stronger affection. And there was a, a pastor, a Puritan years ago, Thomas Chalmers, back in the 1700s, 1800s, wrote one of the most famous defenses of this whole concept. The book was called, quote, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection the expulsive power of a new affection, and John Piper just took that, that concept and ran with it and concluded that the secret to overcoming the powerful, suicidal attraction of sin is to be so satisfied with God that you don't look for satisfaction in anything or anyone else. It's the heart of the psalmist, Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you, God, and besides you I desire what? Nothing. Nothing on earth. I don't need anything on earth. I've got you. Why do I need anything here? So the fight against sin is, is at the end of the day, it's the, the fight to stay satisfied with God. We need to believe that nothing will truly and ultimately satisfy us apart from him. Matthew Henry said it so well, uh, the old commentator. He said, quote, the joy of the Lord, or finding our joy in the Lord, our satisfaction, our happiness in the Lord, will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those pleasures with which the tempter baits his hooks.
So the way to avoid sedition against God is by maintaining satisfaction in God. Well, there's one more step here. Seduction, sedition, and then lastly, separation. Notice verse 15, then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. In other words, when it's full grown, when it's fully developed, it results in death. So again, he's using the same language, the same analogy of a birth here. In the same way, the birth of a baby is the natural result of a fully developed fetus. So the natural result of fully developed sin is death. There's, there's three generations here. There's the mother, lust. There's the daughter, sin. And then there's the granddaughter, death. Lust gives birth to sin and sin gives birth to death. And that word death there is not cessation of life. We know this. Um, in other words, not the end of life. It's not that you fall over dead and die, right? Because I surely wouldn't be standing up here. I'd already be dead, right? If uh, None of you would be here either, right? Because we sin all the time, every day. This is talking about being separated, right? This idea of death here, being separated from God. And when a person dies, they don't stop living, even when they die, they, their soul is separated from their body. So sin results in both physical and spiritual death. The separation of the soul from the body, the separation of the soul from God. And again, we see this all played out in the original sin in, in Genesis chapter 1. God made it very clear from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you sh eat from it, you will surely, what? Die. And they went ahead and did it anyway. And Satan called into question the word of God. You shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. Did he actually say that? That was Eve quoting, by the way, misquoting scripture. That's the importance. We were talking, talking to a guy this week about scripture memory, and it's important that we get verses right and accurate because she mis, misquoted God here. She added to God's word. He said not even to touch it. He says, no, nah, you're not going to die. For God knows that in the day you eat it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And it says that both, both of their eyes were opened Right? And, they, and they were cast out of the garden. But, but you see all three stages of the deception of sin were in play in the garden. There was seduction. Satan deceived them. He seduced them. There was sedition. And then there was, there was separation. So, so Adam and Eve swallowed the deception hook, line, and sinker. They believed Satan's lie. That they would be like God, and instead of becoming like God, they ended up being separated from God. And their sin plunged the entire human race into sin and caused all of us to be separated from God. Romans 5.12, therefore just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Ezekiel 18.4 says the soul that sinneth will die. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death.
So the deceptive and destructive stages of sin and temptation that James outlined here in this passage, seduction, sedition, separation, they're illustrated multiple ways, multiple places um, throughout the Bible. I want you to turn with me just to one example, and, and we'll, we'll close with this. But look at Proverbs chapter 7. Proverbs chapter 7. And this is one of the most graphic descriptions of what James described in James chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. And here we have the father coaching the son, instructing the son, discipling the son. And one of the things that he was warning his son about is immorality, sexual immorality. And the immoral woman uh, plays a role in the book of Proverbs and, and uh, she represents sexual immorality. But, uh, but I, I would encourage you even as we read this to just think about her as sin, okay? That this immoral woman represents sin and how it works. Look at verse six. This is Proverbs chapter seven, verse six. For at the window of my house, I looked out through my lattice and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner and he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. So just again, view this woman here as a picture of temptation and sin. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. So she seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to offer peace offerings. Today I've paid my vows. Therefore, I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly. And I have found you. I've spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses for my husband is not at home he has gone on a long journey he has taken a bag of money with him at the full moon he will come home with her many persuasions she entices him with her flattering lips she what seduces him so verses 6 through 21 that's the seduction stage now notice the sedition stage. It's actually just one verse. Verse 22. Suddenly, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter. So really, the sedition is simply that phrase. Suddenly, he follows her. He gives in to the seduction. He, he, he forgot that he was getting conned, scammed, he's about to get ripped off, and then the separation, as an ox goes to the slaughter, I mean, it's like the next phrase goes right to the conclusion, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know that it will cost him his life. 
Now, therefore, my sons, listen to me and pay attention to the words of my mouth. Do not let your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths, for many are the victims she has cast down, and numerous are all her slain. Her house is the way of Sheol, descending to the chambers of death. Sobering text. But there's hope because there's a way to stop the degrading process of temptation and sin before it gets to that last stage of death, separation from, from God. You can, stop, you can stop it in the seduction stage by, by fleeing from the temptation. You, you can run. That's what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee youthful lust, run away, escape. So you can stop it in the seduction stage by fleeing from it. You can also stop it in the sedition stage by turning from the sin that you've committed. It's called repenting. That's what Pinocchio did. I, know, I don't know if you ever thought of that. Pinocchio repented. <laughs> He was seduced by temptation, but as soon as he found out that he had been tricked, that he'd been conned, that he'd been scammed, what did he do? He fled Pleasure Island. He got out of there and went running, right? And if I remember right, he dove off the cliff into the ocean as a way of fleeing, very much like Joseph in Genesis 39. That's another great Example or illustration of how we should respond to temptation. Beloved brethren, stop being deceived. Stop being deceived. There's no reason why you need to give into temptation. You know exactly what it is and how it works and what it's going to do and where it's going to end up. And the only reason you'll give into it is if you're stupid. Because sin makes you stupid. Makes us all stupid, doesn't it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this simple text that's not very complicated, but it's just rich with helpful insights into how we battle against Satan and, and sin and temptation. And so, Lord, it's, it's, it's a lot easier for me and to, to preach a message about not giving in to temptation, not taking the bait, than for me to not take the bait. It's, it's easier for uh, all of these folks to sit here and listen to a message about not taking the bait and, than it is to actually not take the bait. So, Lord, we need your help. Um, to, to put into practice the principles that we've learned. Help us not to be forgetful hearers who walk out of here and, and give in to the same temptations this week that we've been given in, that we gave in to, to last week. Lord, help us to be wise, even as the dad was trying to help his son be wise and to not put himself in situations or, um, you know, uh, or, or places or settings where he could be tempted to sin. So Lord, just help us to walk in wisdom this week and, and ultimately that we would find our satisfaction in you and you alone, that we would be content with, with you, that you would be enough for us.
that you would be all that we need, uh, trusting you that, that you never withhold anything good from those who walk uprightly. So help us to believe that and trust in that this week. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.